So mid-2000s, mobile money changes finance forever in Africa and other places. So what is mobile money? So you take a continent that very few ATMs, people don't have access to banks, no access to finance. All of a sudden, they can access the financial system through their phone. And it's even simpler. It's through their SIM card. So what that means is I can sit in New York, wherever I sit, send money to someone's phone in a refugee settlement in Uganda. They get a text. They see you've received $100, or in this case, shillings. Great. Whenever they want, they can take that phone to a local agent and convert that money either to digital cash, sorry, either to physical cash and take it out like you would take out money from an ATM or buy stuff with it. So, oh my goodness, now I can access all these people that I couldn't access before with the technology. We know people aren't just going to start drinking and quitting their jobs. Let's get on a plane and see if there's anything else we're missing. And that's what we did. Uh, went to Kenya. Uh, the first person was one of my co-founders, Rohit. Um, started walking around asking people for their phone numbers. Wow. I love it so much. So then they were like, who are these uh, oddballs asking us for our phone numbers? But I, I guess they're trusting. and <laughs> they, they, They're like, what are we going to do? I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. Uh, you'd be surprised. I mean, imagine if I knocked on your door and said, hey, Andrew, I'm here. Never met me. Just sign some forms, give me your phone number, and I'll give you $20,000. Well, well, th this is a very important lesson, uh, and it's something that I've learned um, in different uh, contexts. But it's really tricky to give people money. You yeah. think that it's easy, but then you have to be like, okay. I know uh, in Stockton, um, uh, Michael Tubbs had to uh, reach out to people multiple times because they just wouldn't believe it. Um, for, for me, when I was running for president, and we decided to give people $1,000 a month for a year, uh, there were all these rules around it where, and I was like, wait a minute, let me, let me get this straight. I can spend millions of dollars on advertising. No problem. I can pay a consultant millions of, or, you know, hopefully you don't pay a consultant millions, but you pay a consultant like, you know, like, like six figures, no problem. I want to give an American a thousand dollars a month. It's like, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't do that. Welcome back to Yang Speaks. Uh, we have an incredible interview today with Michael Fay, the co-founder and CEO of Give Directly. He's given a lot of people money very directly. But, but before that, we have a really exciting announcement. My new book, Forward, will be coming out on October 5th, and you can pre-order it right now. I am so amped about this book. It's going to be the next chapter of my life <laughs> because... In true Andrew Yang fashion, I couldn't just write a book and then be like, and there's a book. It's like, and now let's go do the thing. So what thing are we talking about? You have to read the book to find out, but uh, it goes through my experiences and what I learned on the presidential trail. It goes through some of the things I learned about our political system, the media, the way technology interacts with the media. Uh, and then it sets out a path forward and how we can actually solve these problems. And I'm, I'm going to be doing my best to help solve them. Uh, but I, I hope you are amped for this book. I'm really proud of it, really excited about it. And you can buy it right now. You can order the book anywhere uh, your favorite bookseller uh, does the thing. Amazon's there, Barnes and Noble, like any of the in any of your favorite booksellers, you can just pre-order the book. And then if you pre-order the book, it's just going to show up magically um, on that sale date. Uh, so, you know, you can set it and forget it. Uh, yeah, uh, be obviously very, very grateful to everyone for buying the book. Uh, and I think you're going to love it. Uh, I'm really excited about it. Not many people have read it, but the people that have read it have had uh, awesome things to say, which has made me really happy. I'm excited about this book for two reasons, Andrew. One, um, you know, I read your last book and I quit my job on Wall Street to go run your campaign. So um, I say this knowing all and it started a, a national movement and made you who you are right now. Um, but I would argue there's this book is better and more important. Um, it's more it gets and you've said this before, like your, every book you write kind of gets more and more closer to the bone. And I think this does that, um, which is a crazy statement, given the impact of the last one. Um, but the second thing and I'm curious thoughts on this as you start to kind of slowly launch this book is. I feel like when you're running for office, you're in like a bit of a 
you can't be truly authentic. I know you always want to be, but you're trying not, you're trying to like navigate, like, like thread the needle or walk that fine line. I'm excited for like uncaged Andrew Yang going forward. And I feel like the book is a very honest reflection of both the presidential candidate and what we actually need to do to solve problems. Do you agree with that? Are you excited about that? Am I, or am I just doing this alone here? <laughs> I'm excited about that for sure, man. I mean, I, I tried to give uh, like a bird's eye view or a uh, candidate's view uh, as to what it was like for me running, what I learned. Uh, I mean, you and I joked about it all the time um, uh, when we were on the trail where if people understood what this process was. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, uh, so I, I want people to understand it. I want people to understand what we actually need to do to move the country forward. It's a little different than what we're being sold all the time or a lot different. Like we're, we're being sold a lot of stuff that actually would not make the difference. Uh, and I, I've figured out what the real difference makers are, and they're doable. It's uh, it's achievable. You know, the the last book, The War on Normal People, I think it awakened people to the fact that something like universal basic income is both necessary and achievable. Uh, and uh, I feel like in some ways this is a direct sequel in that uh, the problem was not precisely what I thought it was. The problem I I tried to solve for was that not enough people knew about universal basic income and if we could get enough people behind it then we could uh, pass it and now i think the problem is that our government does not actually listen to us <laughs> uh, or uh, respond to us in the way that we're taught um, as children in this country um, and so how do we change that yeah it's uh, and exactly kind of what i was saying for that that's a deeper cut Right. Because um, you got people like cash relief is favorable, um, both in the Democratic Party and, and nationally. But we still don't we have only parts of it. Right. And there's plenty of other issues where we're all aligned on and we don't actually solve for. And there's a lot of systemic. The, the question I set out to answer is the like the first line of the book is like, why isn't it working? Uh, you yeah. know, like the, that's what we're all trying to figure out. And I think I figured out at least a big part of it. Um, so please do get excited book comes out October 5th, but you can order your copy right now. I'm going to do everything I can to start uh, publishing excerpts and like little bits and pieces, uh, but a lot of it's going to have to wait until October. Um, so excited about it, really proud of it. I think this may be the greatest contribution that I make. Uh, so, you know, I, I might feel like the last book in Cash Relief, uh, enormous contributions, but I think this may be as bigger, bigger. With that, make sure you get your copy because those are bold. Those are big words from Andrew Yang. <laughs> I'm excited. Forward by Andrew Yang. Go get one. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I am so pumped to welcome to the podcast one of my personal heroes and role models, the man who has made giving people money real for millions of people around the world, the co-founder and CEO of Give Directly and Tap Tap Send, Michael Fay. Michael, welcome to the oh, podcast. Oh, you're way too kind, Andrew. I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, so you, you're like a real-life superhero uh, <laughs> and someone that I call occasionally to learn from. 
um, because when I ran for president on universal basic income, uh, it was uh, abstract to a lot of people. Uh, and one of the things I say to people all the time was that, uh, that, and this wasn't me, this was a neuroscientist who said to me, Andrew, what you're going to be combating is, uh, is the human mind <laughs> when you start talking about trying to give everyone money uh, because we're all programmed for resource scarcity. Uh, and you're someone who has demonstrated that this works. So how the heck did you come to cash relief uh, and then how did you get your start? Because uh, you were something unusual. You were a grad student who then uh, went out and started uh, an organization on the side. Uh, but how did that come about? Yeah, it's a funny state of the world when giving people money to make them less poor is considered innovative, right? Well, yeah, but I mean, again, you've, you've demonstrated that it works. Uh, so Give Directly got started uh, a number of years ago, and then I think it got more public attention um, more recently. Um, I, let's get, let's take it all the way back because people might be interested. Uh, like, did you have a childhood interest in giving people money? <laughs> I've asked my parents that so many times. I can't remember. Uh, look, I think we, I did a, I worked at the UN for two years. I worked for Jeff Sachs in the millennium project. I went to get a PhD in economics and studied development economics. Which so, so, uh, so step back. Um, you grew up here in the States. I grew up in the States. I was born in Brooklyn, grew up in Long Island. Look at this. Two yeah, public school yeah, yeah. teacher parents. Yes. Oh, wow. And so um, so how the heck did you wind up working uh, for the UN? I guess as a New York product, that might have been an, a natural aspiration. Uh, so I, went, I went to school. I met Jeff Sachs. I uh, started to do international work there. I actually hadn't left the country, I think, till I was late high school, early college. Um, and where was that? The first trip was to Australia, and the second one was to Costa Rica. But the one that changed a lot was to Ecuador. It was the year that Ecuador dollarized, and there was just extraordinary poverty during that process. Wow. What year was that? Oh, gosh. You're testing my memory, which isn't great. Ecuador was 2004 about. Oh, sorry, 2000. Wow. <laughs> so you go to Ecuador in 2000. Uh, you're working for the UN, and then you go back to school. And uh, I, I guess your exposure to... Uh, poverty in a very deep sense then influenced your studies? Yeah. So I decided that's what I was going to focus on. The first organization I started was something called the Student Global AIDS Campaign with a number of other people. Uh, and that was focused on getting AIDS relief and drugs to those in most need. Uh, started to work with Jeff on some research projects, went with him down to the UN and decided that's what I was going to spend my time on. So a lot of people have thought about giving people money. How did you get actually into the giving people money business? And it's not a business. In your case, it's been nonprofits. <laughs> well, 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 people had been giving people money. We weren't the first to give people money to make them less poor. There were NGOs, there were governments doing it. Um, what we did was to do it exclusively and, and really start to talk about taking it to scale, which, asks the, which begs the question of why hadn't it been taken to scale before? So when you say exclusively, you mean exclusive to your organization, or that's the only intervention? That's the only thing we do, and we're focused on it. And I looked back, and there was a conversation, because we couldn't understand this. So we were grad students. We were studying development. And at the time, there were a number of evaluations coming out that showed when you give people money, they spend it well. And they spend it, frankly, better than a lot of organizations and, spend and, it. And, and what year was that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, so I started graduate school in, what, 2004? So, All right, uh, so, so the mid-2000s, there are studies coming out that are saying, hey, giving people money uh, works. Um, and so you get excited about that, and uh, some other grad students right. get excited and about that. And it's more that. than that. I mean, this was the revolution. So I think two years ago, the Nobel Prize went to Esther Duflo, Michael Kramer, and Abhijit Banerjee for bringing the tools of evaluation and randomized trials to the study of poverty alleviation, right? So these are tools you use in tech companies to test what color button should we use. It's what we use to test drugs and vaccines, but it had not been tested on these other life-saving interventions of poverty reduction. So we test. This is happening early 2000s. We learned two things. One, giving people money works well. Uh, and, and this is a, a time when the customary intervention was not necessarily to give people money. I remember that there was a lot of stuff uh, around uh, nets, textbooks, uh, laptops. Well, nets absolutely work. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't work. This is also the time of the microfinance revolution. So you heard it here first. 
money works, nets work. <laughs> it's like deworming, check, check. deworming works. There are things that work. We spend a lot of money on other things that don't work. Uh, and that's what we've got to fix. I mean, money works pretty clearly. And so you saw the data and, and thought, okay, like we should do more of this. So uh, how did a group of scrappy grad students then end up uh, getting the resources to, to start trying? Because I, I, I think there was something really uh, grassrootsy and, and uh, inspirational about it, where you just started with very, very small sums of money. Is that right? Oh, yeah. And we used to have this auction each year for the department of where to give money to. And at some point, you spend enough years studying poverty, some friends start to ask, where should I donate? It's like, oh, that's a good question. I've been reading too many textbooks. I don't have a great answer for you. Let me actually think about this for a bit. So actually, why can't we just give directly to people? So that seems to make sense. We see the evidence now. Next step, let's find an organization to do that. And we called a number of organizations, some of whom had run pilot programs, and said, can we just give you money to give directly? Well, that's going to be complicated. Well, why is it going to be complicated? Um, and it became clear that no one was going to do it for us. So interesting. So the mid-2000s, you look up and say, okay, uh, where can we donate money so it'll be directly transferred to people who are struggling in poverty in the developing world? And then uh, you can't find it. So then you decide to start that org yourself? <laughs> I, there were a few steps in the process. Step one was, we must be missing something. We're naive kids that have been studying economic, economic models. What are we missing? There's a reality aspect to all of this. Now, fortunately, there was another big change at the time, right? It wasn't just the research. So mid-2000s, mobile money changes finance forever in Africa and other places. So what is mobile money? So you take a continent that very few ATMs, people don't have access to banks, no access to finance. All of a sudden, they can access the financial system through their phone. And it's even simpler. It's through their SIM card. So what that means is I can sit in New York, wherever I sit, send money to someone's phone in a refugee settlement in Uganda. They get a text. They see you've received $100, or in this case, shillings. Great. Whenever they want, they can take that phone to a local agent and convert that money either to digital cash, sorry, either to physical cash and take it out like you would take out money from an ATM or buy stuff with it. So, oh my goodness, now I can access all these people that I couldn't access before with the technology we know people aren't just going to start drinking and quitting their jobs. Let's get on a plane and see if there's anything else we're missing. And that's what we did. Uh, went to Kenya. Uh, the first person was one of my co-founders, Rohit. Um, started walking around asking people for their phone numbers. Wow. I love it so much. So then they were like, who are these uh, oddballs asking us for our phone numbers? But I, I guess they're trusting. and. <laughs> They, they, they're like, what harm could it do? I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. Uh, you'd be surprised. I mean, imagine if I knocked on your door and said, hey, Andrew, I'm here. Never met me. Just sign some forms, give me your phone number, and I'll give you $20,000. Well, well th this is a very important lesson, uh, and it's something that I've learned uh, in different uh, contexts. But it's really tricky to give people money. You yeah. think that it's easy, but then you have to be like, okay. I know uh, in Stockton, um, uh, Michael Tubbs had to uh, reach out to people multiple times because they just wouldn't believe it. Um, oh, yeah. for, for me, when I was running for president and we decided to give people $1,000 a month for a year, uh, there were all these rules around it. Where And, and I was like, wait a minute, let me, let me get this straight. I can spend millions of dollars on advertising, no problem. I can pay a consultant millions of, or, you know, hopefully you don't pay a consultant millions, but you know, pay a consultant like, you know, like, like six figures, no problem. I want to give an American a thousand dollars a month. It's like, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't do that. Um, and so when we did it first, you have to try and identify people. You have to convince them that it's above board. Um, and then there's a, there was a process, at least here domestically as a candidate. So we found that the easiest way for uh, us to give someone a thousand bucks a month was for me personally to give them a thousand dollars a month because that's below the IRS gift limit, um, which is above $12,000. Uh, and I was like, wait, let me get this straight. <laughs> like the easiest way for us to do this is for me, the candidate just to give people a thousand bucks a month. And 
Uh, and so I, I was literally writing personal checks, uh, and I like just dated them for the first of the month and just like sent people. <laughs> In part because I wasn't gonna remember to Venmo them like the first of every month. Like probably I was like, look, yeah. let me just like, get, and they'll also know it's real because they, they'll have checks in an envelope. Um, so it, it's uh, I, I'd imagine the it's both easier and harder to get this done. Um, in the developing world context, because there are probably no rules against it, right? Like I, I can give someone. You'd be surprised. Okay, yeah. So let's. let's so yeah. What, what were your findings? The complexity of giving people money is vastly underestimated. Um, Agreed. Because it raises a lot of questions that we should have been asking for a long time, and everything else. So what happens when you say, "Well, you're just going to give a lot of people money"? You say, "Well, how do you know it's the right people?" great question. That's called targeting in the literature, but it applies to everything. If I was giving people sheep, how do you know it's the right people? You would definitely need to make sure you were giving a sheep to the right person. If you gave the wrong person a sheep, things would go poorly for both the sheep and uh, you know, maybe the person. Yeah, we, uh, I didn't bring a sheep for you today. I'm sorry, Andrew. Oh, that's totally fine. <laughs> um, uh, I would have been one of the wrong people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've got the targeting problem. Right? So that's problem one. Second problem, people say, well, how do you know there's not fraud? If you're giving people money, surely people are going to try to steal it. And the answer is they do. And you have to build systems for that. But you know what? That's true of every development program and every social program. And one of my favorite answers to that is, yeah, but cash is really valuable. <laughs> Wait a second. So we're going to say we're going to give people things that are not valuable lest other people try to defraud the system. That logic doesn't make sense. So how, how do you deal with fraud? How do you make sure you're not causing issues in the community of any sort, right? You don't want to be invoking domestic violence. As it turns out, cash reduces domestic violence. Yes. You want to make sure that you're not altering power. You have to be very thoughtful about that. And then you have to be very aware of both local and national political structures. Like people get worried. Are you giving to one ethnic group over another? Are you trying to affect the next election? And those are the things you need to I was be trying really to thoughtful the next about. <laughs> <laughs> we do not try to affect the next elections. Um, That's the difference between you and me, Michael. No, no. So, so uh, well, cash is very popular uh, from a government standpoint. You a majority, I mean, a majority of people are for it uh, uh, here in America now, happily. Uh, when I got started, the the uh, approval rate for universal basic income was. I think something like 24%. It was not high. And now it's, last I checked, it was uh, like 56%. Um, so things yeah, are, it's incredible what's happened over the last two years. And you obviously played a central role in that, but I think people's oh, perception. Well, you, you played a central role in helping me know that it's real and actionable. Um, so, uh, so Rohit shows up in Kenya uh, in the mid-2000s and starts gathering phone numbers. <laughs> and then he comes back and is like, "Okay, guys, I got some phone numbers." Like, you know, like so. So then you uh, raised some money and started sending it to people. Like, what, so what I, 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 re I repeated the endeavor uh, shortly thereafter. So you went too, and you were um, like, "We need more phone numbers. It's my turn." Yeah, and I very distinctly walking around the camp asking people for their number. A lot of people saying, "No, are you part of the Illuminati?" No one's ever given me something for free. What are you going to ask me for? I just don't trust you. You spend a lot of time, uh, and we did that. One of my favorite um, memories of that trip was there was a little store outside the, uh, outside the area, and it was empty. It was completely abandoned. And you could imagine going in and saying, well, what are we going to give people cash for? There's nothing to buy here. There's, there's no market. There's no stores. You gave people money. Guess what? The store started to fill up because it made sense for the shopkeeper to go back to buy inventory and start selling things. And that you see in the research since, which is you actually not only have an impact on the people that get cash, but on those that don't get cash and the broader economy. Uh, and, and there's a very important point there, which is that, uh, that the, the market will seek out people that have the resources. Uh, if, if you're not able to participate in the market, then you go to the town, you're like, well, there's nothing going on here. But if all of a sudden the people in that town had money, then uh, there'd be a, like a business that, that's serving them. Um, or they'd start it th themselves because they'd look yes. up and say, wait a minute, you know, it's like, w we, we, need a, we need a shop here. And like, I can do that. And then it starts as like a basic food stand and everything else. Markets respond 
and, and they respond quickly. And, and surely there are places where that may not be the case because you're so far off the grid. I mean, it was working I've in Kenya. Some, it's working. <laughs> it's kind of working. I mean, we're, we're, doing, we're doing this in Liberia. Right? Yeah, you can do it in very tough places. And, and Liberia doesn't even print their own money. They have to get it brought in on boats. Um, there was really no mobile money infrastructure in Liberia when we got started. There's a rainy season which cuts off large parts of the country. So for at half this the point year. now, how many countries have you been, been so to? So eleven countries. Eleven countries. That's so fun. Um, so so you and, and the band of grad students then started sending small sums uh, to two people. What was like the total number of people you were sending money to in that first? Uh, Gosh, first I must have trial? spent. A whopping five thousand dollars. So, still <laughs> I forget how much money we. Uh, I mean, it's still legit, especially uh, after it translates to um, Kenya. I mean, like you know, it'd be enormously impactful. I'm sure when people first started yeah. getting money, they were freaking out. <laughs> oh yeah, um, and that's what we did. Then we tried to experiment with the operations, right? Say, okay, can I just hire the village elder and ask him to pick the people and give it out? Well, that probably didn't work so well. Yeah, he, that would have problems. He, he picks his friends and family. <laughs> yeah, that, that, one, that one was obvious in retrospect. Um, can we pay in PESA agents? Because they're already going around on motorbikes delivering SIM cards and things. Can they be part of this? Well, that worked okay. And how do you start to put the checks and balances in place to build out this robust cash distribution infrastructure? Um, and that's what we did. And we've evolved a lot a decade later. Well, so then uh, then who, who's the first... Um, investor or supporter that recognizes that what you're doing is profound and says, you know what, instead of you just doing bake sales and like getting a few hundred bucks from your friends, we're going to give like, you know, you this, like, like who, who is the, the first to figure it out? Yeah. So it was a, a friend named Vivek who I have to give credit for. He, uh, he uh, had his first finance job and said, this is great. Like I want to fund some of this and gave us a bit more uh, money and said, see if we can grow this. Uh, we then, launched a research project because we were academics and before scaling anything, we wanted to know that exactly what we were doing also worked. Yes, we had evidence on cash, but we did not yet have evidence on us and we wanted to build that. So we did our first research project, use some research funds for too, that. Too, too, too much research, man. Should have just I, uh, gone and been like, we know this works. <laughs> like, God's blazing. <laughs> I, uh, I, I hear you. Go with the money. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Well, it helped. It helped. And it helped because there are a lot of people that wanted to engage. And that's what was nice. So the first big check that we got, um, well, there are two. One was unorthodox philanthropy and uh, the Lampert family, uh, which is an incredible story. Because they he said, you know, we had a big stack of applications. It's one of these programs where you submit a page or two. Wow, what your that big worked. Ideas. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a few thousand dollars at the time. Oh, wow. And he'll tell the story. He remembers someone pulling out the stack and saying, this is the worst application I've ever seen. This goes against everything we do in the sector, and we cannot fund this. Mark being Mark said, what is that one? <laughs> that one was give directly. So that was the next step. And then once we had run the research, we had gone over to see google.org. And they said, at some level, we don't care what you're doing. Let's show me the data. Let's engage at the data level. Uh, and to their credit, they engaged in the data. And they said, this is really good. Uh, and then challenged us to think bigger. I remember going in, I forget what we were asking, maybe it was $100,000, $200,000, $200,000. What if we gave you a few million dollars? Could you open a new country? Could you expand this? Because this could be a billion dollars, $2 billion to the poor. This could be billions of dollars to the poor. So at what point did you realize that this was going to be your life? Uh, you know, like you're in grad school, you're, you're doing this. At what point did you say, you know what, where, 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 <laughs> like this organization is uh, going to be my uh, contribution, my life's work, and that you, you were going to be the CEO? Oh, gosh. I think I knew I wanted to work on poverty forever. I think it's a very tractable. It's tractable. We can solve it, and it's important. Um, on the latter, gosh, it implies that I planned that long. No, no, Andrew, I, no, no, I, was, no, I don't uh, mean that. But so, so uh, what I'm just asking is, like, you're a grad student, and then like uh, oh, I had no. I, we had, we had we didn't even know if it was going to be an org. We we all four of us, Paul, Jeremy, Rowett, and I, all took turns running it uh, at the beginning. That, that, well, that's, sort that's of, one of my questions. Is like you know you have a group of people around it, and then uh, like you know there there are other things one could do professionally with one's de degree and whatnot. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, this was on the side. Um, yeah, this is a side project, and it it started to grow and grow. And the thing that we were skeptical about was whether people would give this way. There were so many people that said no one's going to give this way. 
like, why would you give us cash when you can give us microfinance and get your money back? Why would you give us cash when it's less appealing than giving a sheep or a goat? So we didn't know. Um, so we did it for years on the side. Everyone took turns. Um, and then it started to grow little by little. And I forget the exact year, maybe it was 2011, 12. It's like, oh, actually, we should really be doing this and so, trying to grow it. So, fa- and uh, again, you, you were one of my inspirations uh, when I was looking at this. For me, I discovered universal basic income uh, 2013, 14 uh, from, from uh, futurist writings, yeah. uh, Martin Ford and the like. Um, and uh, all of the things I'd seen about the future of work ended up being like, and at some point we're probably going to need something like universal basic income. And I was like, yeah, that seems right. That seems right. Um, but the the book that pushed me over the edge was Andy Stern's book in 2015, yep. Raising the Floor, where the labor guy came out and said, yeah, we're going to need <laughs> we're going to need universal basic income. So I was like, I was like okay. The techies saying that technology is going to displace workers, you you can understand why they would naturally think that. But then the labor guy saying that technology is going to displace workers. Um, and so when I started looking into it uh, in earnest, uh, you you were one of the people that I turned to uh, to demonstrate that it works in a range of contexts. Most of GiveDirectly's work at, at that point and still is in, in the developing world. Um, and you and I worked together on, on some ways to get uh, people money during the pandemic, uh, which was exciting. If you fast forward to today, uh, like how many people are receiving money through Give Directly, and, and what kind of sums have you actually transferred? Because I know it's really significant at this point. I've you know I haven't talked yeah. to you in a number of months, so like the numbers have probably like gone up even since last time I spoke to you. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's about a million people. Uh, we've raised about a little bit over seven hundred million at this point. Seven hundred million dollars. Um, <laughs> we have a long ways to go. There is a lot of poverty left in the world. So extreme poverty is $1.90 a day, and people aren't at zero. Let's say they're at a dollar, so another dollar a day gets them across the poverty line. Yeah, 350 bucks a, a, a year gets someone out of extreme global poverty. Yeah, I used to say it's, it's a cup of coffee a day, but it's not even. It's a sip. And that's an amazing opportunity. Don't give from guilt. Give because for a dollar a day, you can help another human being cross the poverty line. And that's pretty powerful. And this is a finite problem, right? There's 750 million or so people in extreme poverty. Let's just count down to zero together. We have the money, right? You look at some numbers I looked at. Billionaires own about $10 trillion of assets wealth-wise globally. Let's say they're getting about a 10% return. That's $1 trillion a year. People estimate the poverty gap at a bit less than $100 billion. Even, wow. if you said it, even if you said we're going to spend $400 billion, the returns alone on that could do it. U.S. Europe GDP is about $40 trillion. If everyone there gave 1%, we could do it. Why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we just counting why to indeed? zero? Why are, we, why, why are we not? So, you're, uh, so you've now uh, helped a million people around the world in how many different countries? Uh, about 11. About 11. Uh, and everywhere you go, uh, there are billboards with your face on it and <laughs> thankful parents. No, I'm, I'm we, we try not to put this face <laughs> on any billboards. No. No, see, again, Michael, this, this is where you're going wrong. You have to influence these elections. <laughs> Michael Faye should be president of these 11 countries simultaneously. Um, so <laughs> we do not want that to be the case. Um, that, that, I don't. I don't want that to be the case either. No, no I, I'm, I'm kidding. Like, you know, it's it's one of the fun things about your work is that uh, more people should know who you are. In my in my view, more people should know about Give Directly. Everyone who supports me should love Give Directly, and it's like such a, a, a tremendous way to have an impact and to help another human being uh, really effectively and inexpensively. Let's and 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 all of the ways that people are concerned, it's like, oh, if I give money to this organization, where does the money go? Is it like you just skip all that stuff? It just goes like directly in the hands of someone yeah. who, who's going to elevate. And I, just two things on that. One, we should be making the pushes for donors, governments to be doing more unconditional cash. There's no question we should do that. And, and right now, the money that you're transferring on a, on a regular basis um, is that coming from uh, philanthropists primarily? It's both. It's both. So we are doing more work with governments than any ever before. And we're doing some of our coolest work with government. So to give you one example. Yes. Um, we are working with the government of Togo. 
during COVID, many governments started cash programs. I think it's over 150 cash programs started during COVID. But they were harder because you couldn't go door to door and enroll people. So you had to find ways to reach even more people remotely without going door to door. So what do you do? So along with the government of Togo, uh, we worked on a program to distribute what wound up being um, COVID relief payments to over half a million people. And the entire thing took less than two weeks. Wow. Um, And the government led, how do you do that? How do you reach half a million people in two weeks? Well, what we did was we used data and we combined it with some algorithms where you can actually look at individual people's individual data if they consent, right? So that's a really important part of this. They should definitely have consented consent to this. Consent is critical. <laughs> but Togo happens to be a country where everybody has a cell phone. You can look at the data from that to identify who is poor or not. And it's machine learning, so you can't articulate exactly yeah, what totally. it is. But you get a sense. If someone's calling Europe for two hours a day, they're probably not the poorest of the poor, right? If they're receiving thousands of dollars of remittances, they're probably not the poorest of the poor. Um, they would get a text, say, or they'd hear a radio ad saying, we're doing this national program. If you want to enroll, type three digits. I forget the digits, 844-POUND. Um, we'll send you a text. We'll call. We have a few questions for you. Click yes. Money shows up on your phone. That's it. That's the complexity of it. You can reach more people more efficiently, more quickly, remotely than ever before. So we're working on this with a number of other countries, but what's possible with this kind of methodology is wild. So imagine there's the Nepalese earthquake. So what's the normal response? We all scramble, what are we going to do? It might take weeks, months to respond. Imagine if I could tell you who was located near the earthquake, how poor they were, and within minutes of the earthquake, put money onto their phones. Uh, I'm going to describe a a very different um, set of experiences. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, also during the pandemic, so uh, early March, uh, I I'd started an organization, Humanity Forward, um, COVID shutting everything down, and so uh, we decide to give a million dollars to a thousand um, struggling families in the Bronx as quickly as possible, uh, with the thought being that uh, it would help them be able to uh, adhere to public health guidelines and would also be an emblem for what our government should be doing at scale. Yeah. And uh, and so we think, okay, how can you identify a thousand poor families in the Bronx as quickly as possible? Um, so the first thing I did was I called um, J.P. Morgan Chase and Citibank and said, look, uh, you have data on your customers. You can tell who's poor, who's struggling, who a thousand dollars would make a massive difference to. We'd like you to just identify a thousand customers yeah. and then we'll send them each a thousand dollars. Uh, and you can, you're smiling, so you probably know what happens next. <laughs> um, so uh, they give us the runaround, and then they say, uh, we can't do that. And they, they cite you know, privacy concerns. And I was like, you do realize we're just actually trying to give your customers a thousand bucks, and you, know, you can explain that however you want. Like, doesn't matter. <laughs> and, and they're like, no, we can't do it. So then we ask them, all right, if you can't do that, how about you just give us debit cards or cash cards of um, any increment you want in a million dollars. You know, you can make it 100, make it 250, like whatever you want. And they're like, no, can't do that. Um, And so happily, not, not, you know, being, um, you know, like uh, uh, get shit done type, uh, I had a parallel track going that whole time, which was trying to find organizational partners uh, who could fill this need. And so we found one neighborhood trust that works with... um, struggling families uh, in the Bronx and other parts of New York City. And so they said, we can identify a 1,000 families. So we, we went through them. Um, they, they also had a personal financial counseling session with each recipient. So, you know, it worked out great. Um, but, uh, you know, the, like it, it, it's, it was discouraging because you'd think that uh, folks who had the data on who's poor would be interested in <laughs> maybe doing something about that. Uh, but we, we reached the right people. But the moral of the story was um, that it was harder than it should have been. Well, that, that story highlights so many of the challenges, right? And I, I'm writing a piece now on, you look at a lot of our government programs, they're not hitting the poorest of the poor for various reasons. 
or operational complexities and issues or, are delaying or e- things. Even the the cash relief checks that have gone out in various the piece forms. Writing. Yeah, it, it's it's gone to people who file tax returns. Exactly. Like, you know who don't, it's don't not file the bottom ten percent. <laughs> like yeah, the, the, the poor, <laughs> the poor. You know, they don't even interact with it. So then, when you're trying to help them, you know, you miss them, and that's tragic, and it's not the point. Um, but the the reason that's happening is that. Of course, our tax return pipes were not intended for this purpose. Yeah. Uh, and when I had a conversation with Ben Bernanke about this, uh, he, he said, well, you could have a Fed account for every person in the United States um, mapped to their Social Security number um, and then just put money in their account. Like it, it doesn't actually have to be through the IRS. It shouldn't be through the IRS. But just the IRS is the only set of pipes that we have that... Uh, could fill this need, so we just keep on leaning into it because it works better than anything else that we have. Even though, you know, a Togo set up something that reached the truly indigent uh, effectively. Yeah, and the operations matter, and we need to invest in them to get better. It sounds so trivial to say, but it's so often forgotten. And you look, and, and we've made progress in this country, but you look back at the um, the old kind of uh, checks that got sent in the mail, and we couldn't print enough checks and get them in the mail quickly enough to get to people. Like, that was actually the bottleneck. Like, surely we can do better than that. As a USA, country, 2020 right. and 2021, like, not enough ink in the printer. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me, I got delayed on a flight. I forget which country I was in. I think it was Burundi. And it was, uh, the printer is out of ink, so we can't print the flight list. So we're going to have to wait for a few hours until we can get in a new printer card. Oh, gosh. You now run one of the most successful nonprofits uh, really anywhere. Um, and one of the questions that nonprofit leaders get all the time is like, you know, uh, why don't you scale? Yeah. <laughs> one of my least favorite. Um, and and uh, as someone who's run a nonprofit, like the answer is, well, if you gave us money to scale, we could scale. <laughs> it, it's exactly right. I mean, give directly last year, I think we raised about 300 million or so which makes us one of the fastest, if not the fastest, over the last 20 years, uh, certainly in the international context. $300 million is not a lot of money. Um, but if you zoom out for a second, it's a broader theme, which is nonprofits aren't really scaling at the levels that you would see in the for-profit space. And you're not seeing as much change in the market as you do in the for-profit space. So here's one fact. It's probably two years out of date, um, but I think the point remains. So if you look at the five largest companies in the U.S., uh, see if I get this right, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, um, Facebook. Uh, the oldest one of those is Microsoft. So I think that's about 45 years old or so. This one, so pretty new. So a lot of change on that dimension. If you look at the five largest nonprofits in the U.S., I think the youngest is about 100 years old. So there's just not a lot of change in the space, which makes you ask, Why? And I think there's one fundamental difference between nonprofits and for-profits. For-profits, there is a feedback mechanism with the customer. If you don't like the iPhone you bought, don't buy an iPhone next year, buy a different phone. And because of that, Apple needs to innovate and make sure you want to buy an iPhone next year. In philanthropy, if the recipient doesn't like what I gave them, if I gave you a sheep but you didn't have any use for a sheep, you're going to fire me? No. Are you going to not buy a sheep from me? No, you're because you didn't buy the sheep. You're just going to take a picture of me smiling next to the sheep, and yes. then you're going to send it to the funders, be like, look at how happy he is with the sheep. Get us more money so we can give him two sheeps next year. <laughs> that, 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 that is the mechanism. Uh, and that has incentives baked in that we need to figure out how to solve. Because what that means is that the customer, in my view, the recipient, the person that you really should care about, doesn't have a voice in what they get. And the donor who's paying has all of the voice. So, so much about what cash is, is putting that voice or giving that voice back to the recipient. Let's let them choose. Don't trust cash, trust recipients. Trust people. Trust people. Trust humans. Trust them to be able to solve their own problems and make their own decisions uh, as opposed to treating them like infants and saying, like, you know what, you need a sheep. (laughs) That's right. Of course. And it's not even, no one's perfect. I'm not saying trust them perfectly, but trust them more than Uh trusting me to pick the right thing for them. Right? We're not here to say anyone's 100% rational. All I'm saying is that someone living They've got a better in a shot village in Liberia <laughs> has a better shot than I do. That's, <laughs> that I do. 
you know, thousands of miles away. It's like, I know what, I know what you need. Uh, so you're in the midst of this incredible 12 year trial in Kenya. I think you're in year five, uh, or something along those lines. And there's actually a documentary being shot, uh, on the results of that trial. I can't wait to see it. It's called drum roll free money. This documentary is <laughs> coming out, uh, next year. Uh, I imagine that, uh, you're pumped to have the results of that trial out because I think it's like the longest term trial, uh, that anyone's ever seen. Yeah, that's right. So this will be 12 years of cash to people. And why I think that's interesting. So universal basic income, we've talked about this a lot. There are three parts. It's universal, so it's to everybody. It's basic. It's not a lot of money. It's just enough to meet your basic needs. And it's an income. So it's not a one-time transfer. It's over a long term. So that combination hasn't really been evaluated. We do parts of it. So we'll do the universal part or we'll do... But the combination hasn't really been uh, tested. Why is that interesting? It's the first question that you get when you tell people we're giving people money for a long time is, well, won't they become dependent? Won't they stop working? And we got this a lot early days, give directly. And one of the responses to it was give directly doesn't give people money over a long period. We give people money once. So we give you money to invest and that's it. You will not get more money. You can't be dependent if you're not getting more. Now we're testing what this looks like over a long period of time. And that's what I think makes this exciting. And we've had some early results. Uh, we released results uh, during COVID. Um, and that was interesting for a second reason. So you might say, great, we know cash works in most contexts we've seen. But how does it work during a pandemic when markets are shut? Right? If give you money, but if you can't buy anything, what's the point? So a lot of questions about whether cash would still be effective during a pandemic. Uh, and the answer was yes. You, you saw the same results. You saw impacts on uh, mental well-being. You saw impacts on consumption. Uh, you saw a lot of the same things you saw elsewhere. Uh, so people were concerned about getting money consistently. And uh, you know, I'm sure your data will bear this out, um, that it still does not mitigate uh, the impulse to work uh, and, and that people are as productive or in many cases more, more. productive. You know, talk about making people dependent. It actually is more likely to make them less dependent or more more independent. Um, but I can't wait for your data to bear that out. Um, there are a number of things that I got when I was running for president. Uh, the biggest question I always got was, where do we get the money? Yeah. Um, and the argument I always had was like, oh, we have the money. <laughs> and, and now we've definitely seen that um, through the relief bills that, that have been put out. Um, and one of the things that I'm concerned about right now is that uh, there's inflation in the U.S. economy, and I think the um, the unsophisticated might look at it and say, "Oh, it's because we've uh, delivered these relief bills and that we we've printed this new money." It's like, no, no, that's not why there's inflation in the U.S. economy right now. It's because the supply chain um, has been broken to, to the point where they, they can't fire it up as easily, and so there are a lot of, a lot of costs that are yeah. b- baked in. Um, so when you were initiating this long-term trial. Um, you got some resistance uh, on this uh, this front. Um, did you like? How did you overcome it, or like, or was it something like, "Hey, let's just see what happens"? The latter. I, I think we know now enough about cash that people believe the impacts will be positive. I think you have this new question of dependency, um, and the results are the opposite, which is because you have the comfort and freedom to invest, right? Because now I know my basic needs can be met. I can take more risks. I can try that business that I've always wanted to try. Not all are going to work, but at least you have the freedom to try. Um, you brought up an important point, which is inflation, right? This is, this is one of the biggest questions you get on cash. If you drop cash in a region, why won't prices just all come up, essentially negating any gains that you might see? Uh, and that's a very reasonable question and one that you would need to test to know the answer, which is what happens? Do people actually do better or do prices just go up? Uh, and the answer has been pretty clear in the literature. So there's a recent study that we put out um, it's called the General Equilibrium Project uh, because it was meant to look at the equilibrium impacts of cash. Uh, and they estimated the impacts on inflation, and they were very, very small, precisely estimated small um, but what you did see was businesses becoming more productive. And you ask, well, how could a business become more productive? Uh, and I'll give you this kind of stereotypical example uh, or the quintessential example from that paper, which is imagine 
you cut hair. Um, so you have to go to your store in the morning. You go at 8 a.m. You stay till 5 p.m. Now, if people aren't coming in, if one person comes in, you still worked a 10-hour day, right? You still had to be in the shop. Only one person comes in. You can't say, I'm going to be a half a person of labor today. Uh, now, five people come in. That's just more productivity for you. You're actually working the same amount of time, but producing more in the economy. And that's the sort of impact you saw. Uh, and the multiplier, they estimate a multiplier. So for every dollar of cash, yeah, how much more do you see? And it was about 2.6, which is consistent with the other literature. Yeah, I'd seen, seen 2.8 someplace else. So look, uh, it's pretty consistent. I'll, I'll take the point too. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, you can say 2.5 to 3. Uh, so you, you've also started to try and solve some for-profit problems through tap, tap, send. Um, people are getting gouged on remittances. Uh, and it sounds like you're finding a way to allow people to transfer money to their uh, family members um, more cheaply and uh, effectively. Cheaper, faster, more reliably. Uh, that's the customer experience that we're going for. Uh, and payments is a fascinating space, right? Because payments, conceptually, you think of it going directly from point A to point B, but that's not the way it works. It stops at seven different places with delays and costs in the system. Um, so what we are trying to do is a lot of the hard work on the ground, uh, the work in Abidjan, the work in Nairobi, um, to figure out what is the cheapest, best path for these remittances. Uh, I mean, I, I've seen this where if I Venmo my friend, um, it's frictionless and you know there, there is not much in the way of uh, fees attached. But if someone's trying to send their uh, family members money in... Um, South America or whatnot, they, they're just getting gouged. And like yeah. there's this giant industry that's doing the gouging. Um, and and it, it's really unfair. I mean, it, it's um, more expensive to be poor, uh, essentially. And then after you get to a certain level, then all of a sudden it becomes frictionless. And so uh, it seems like you're trying to reduce the friction for the people that need the money the most. That's right. And, and it takes work. I mean, one of the things we talk about as the team is Put the friction on us. Make us go sit somewhere for six months and do all the hard work to figure out exactly the right path so that we can present a frictionless, cheap experience to our customers. Uh, and it's important. So one of the motivations for TapTap was the UN Sustainable Development Goal on remittances. So UN Sustainable Development Goals are these ambitious global targets for the world. Um, there's a lot of them. One heading is reduction of poverty. One of the sub-bullets there is bringing remittance prices down to 3% globally uh, and not having any corridor more than 5%. Oh, even and, 3% sounds like a lot. Like, what do you, what do you get it down to? Um, so we're, 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 uh, we're, 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 we're doing better um, than 3%. And it's hard Imagine to losing it. 5% of your money trying to send it to your family. That would make me really sad. But people just do it all the time and, and you know, are just used to it. Yeah, we're doing better than the 3%. Um, when you're doing better than 3%, i am talking about 5%. I mean, that, that's terrible. <laughs> you know? it's, there, there is a lot of complexity in the system. You need to work with local banks. Tap, you tap, need to buy send. FX. Not very complicated. These are markets that are often overlooked, and, and we want to invest in the customer. Uh, we view ourselves very much as a co-op. It's like we're just going to do the work to make it easier for everyone else. Again, so heroic. Uh, so what are you most excited about? I mean, people are coming to you with all sorts of things. You're now helping hundreds of thousands of people around the world. We have this uh, incredible 12-year-long trial that, that you're getting more and more data from. Uh, like, what, what should people be optimistic about? Uh, and if you do have, let's say you're a crypto person and you have a bajillion extra dollars, like, send it to give directly to send to some poor people. I mean, you know, like, it sounds like one thing would be what to be excited about would be just be whether or not you're getting more funding. Uh, but what, like, what are you seeing that can give us all some hope? I think we should look at the results coming out of the UBI project and have a collective we can do this moment. So to preview, we don't see dependency. People still spend the money well. You see consumption increase. You see incomes increase for businesses. What that means is that we can end poverty very clearly and very mechanically. And we will continue to push governments and we should continue to push governments to do more. But in the meantime, every one of us can do this. And I come back to that, the 40 trillion number, the 1%, if we all gave 1% of our income, we can do this. Why don't we have a global movement to just get it done? 
Like we now have the pipes, and it doesn't need to just be give directly, right? This should be it a collective effort. No, like <laughs> it should not just be give directly. Um, this, this should be much bigger than give wait, directly. Wait, guys, I'm about to start a competitor, <laughs> and it's called Give More Directly. Send your money to Give More Directly. You think Give Directly is doing it direct? <laughs> We're gonna do it more direct. No, give, give, <laughs> uh, give, give Directly better. We've got Give Directly better. <laughs> you have Give Directly no, better. We don't, we don't have it. But you did have Give More Directly. Yeah, give, give Directly best. Well, the history. The funny thing about that name was we really wanted to be Give Direct for a while, but then we uh, we couldn't get that domain, so we had to go grammatically correct. <laughs> um, That's funny. But yeah, we have this moment uh, as a community. And like, let's not wait for governments to do it. Like, go take one person out. Have your friend take one person out. And let's just do it one by one and count down to zero. We don't need to wait. That, that's, what need to me wait. Op- that's what makes me optimistic. No, I, I opened up with this uh, neuroscientist who said to me that, um, that your enemy is the human mind trying to get people to... Uh, adopt universal basic income because people reflexively and i i know this you know this when you talk about giving people money uh people immediately are like oh uh it's gonna make them lazy uh it's gonna cause inflation yep um you know where do we get the money like and and there are these knee-jerk reactions because that is the way we're programmed um and uh the scarcity mindset has been probably vital for you know, X centuries, but we're at this crucial point in human history where we do have the resources to alleviate poverty around the world if we just decided to do so. We 100% have the resources to alleviate poverty in the United States of America if we just decided to do so. Uh, And the major question is whether enough people will adopt uh, a mindset of abundance in time for us to do it. And we don't have an unlimited window uh, because eventually you wind up with um, some negative trends, climate change being chief among them, um, that may make it more difficult for yeah. you to <laughs> to to, to, uh, to uh, solve for poverty. Um, so this was my mission in running for president. This is your mission, give directly. But uh, it's uh, what, what's interesting is like this human mind conversion. Uh, it, it has to happen in uh, a lot of people. Um, to your earlier point about the fact that there are a number of billionaires who have the resources to be able to solve for this, it's like if you get some of them into it, unfortunately, they, they count for more <laughs> than, than, than like the, you know, the the average person. Um, but th- this, to me, is the great project of the age: is to try to shift from scarcity uh, to abundance as quickly as possible. I agree. In an environment where, unfortunately, even the affluent have felt uh, scarcity in different ways over this last period of time. Um, And if it's not scarcity of material wealth, uh, you know, that there's like a sense of uh, isolation or being beleaguered or intimacy uh, or or whatever it is. So uh, I think COVID has made our project simultaneously much more difficult and easier. Easier because now everyone sees the need. And hopefully the illusions of the meritocracy just seem all the more ridiculous where it's like, oh, it's your fault. It's like, well, it can't really be your fault (laughs) because, you know, the the economy got shut down. So it's clearly not your fault. Um, That's been very powerful. It it doesn't allow the othering or the blame that so often comes with poverty. Oh, you're poor because you're naive or something. Yeah. Okay, we're all going through COVID because there was a global pandemic through no fault of either of ours. Yeah. So 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 that's good. Uh, the fact that so many governments were pushed to adopt cash measures and then everyone sees how effective they are. I mean, the fact that now in the U.S., 36 million families are going to get this child tax credit of, let's call it, you know, like $300 a month. Uh, that's going to be an incredible poverty reducer here in the U.S. Uh, and I, I feel like after people experience that, then... There, there's no going back from it. We hope. I mean, you know, Congress can screw anything up, but, yeah. <laughs> but so, so there, there are some trends that are very, very positive uh, in terms of yeah. cash and, and abundance, um, and then there, there are some trends that are more difficult because, uh, again, I, I think that um, that uh, it that on an individual level, I think fewer people are feeling as optimistic um, and perhaps generous as, as they might have in another 
uh, period? Yeah, it can be overwhelming, right? It, you look at all the world's problems and it's very easy to be overwhelmed as an individual. Um, but 1% is not a lot. We can do that. And we can also probably save another percent for climate change and maybe one for deworming and other things. Um, but you personally don't need to solve everything. I need to you solve can take everything, a few Michael. People. So do no, you. you. You might solve it all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to solve everything either. You um, and me, this uh, <laughs> this conversation, we're not going to leave this room until it's solved. Um, we're going to be spending a little bit of time together. <laughs> but that's kind of the point. Think about it at an individual level. You can solve, you can take one person out. Maybe 1% allows you to take 10 people out. I don't know. So let's start there. And, and then we can go, and we, we, we can do this together. That, like it, poverty is a finite problem that we can solve. Well, that's a fitting end. We can do this together. Michael, thank you for being uh, such a role model and, and inspiration and showing people that poverty is solvable, that we can, uh, we can solve for it if we all come together and just have the will to do so. So thank you, man. Really appreciate it. Awesome. And, uh, thank you. Time. Great. Thanks, Andrew.